I'm talking to uh, Alan Zweibel today, who certainly belongs in the comedy pantheon. He's done so much that I'm not even, I'm not going to do his bio because that would be it. So I remember when I first encountered you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, was it at the Atlantic Monthly that there was an article? Yeah, I had written a piece for the Atlantic yeah. Monthly called Comic Dialogue. And t- tell me about that. Well, what it was is before I got uh, my big break, which was as one of the original SNL writers, I wrote for about 100 comedians who worked at Catskill Mountains. Uh, every Mickey, Dickie, Morty, Freddie, and Lee that ever lived, <laughs> I, I sold jokes to for $7 a joke. And what comic dialogue was is that I took all of them and melded them into one character named Stu Cooper, and I sort of chronicled the relationship between me and this now fictitious mm-hmm. uh, comedian over a 10-year period of time when he first gave me a break by letting him letting me write for him. And then uh, as my career got better, uh, his started to wane, and I then became in a position to help him. And it was as if, um, dramatically, if this, how haughty will this sound, um, that uh, as if Biff Lohman became a better salesman than Willie while he was still alive. <laughs> right, the brother. Yeah, right, right. there you go. But they're, they're actual writers that you were working with that you don't give their names, right? Well, th- th- these were comics that comics, um, I, mean, uh, yes. I was working with and for. The first comedian that I ever wrote for was a, a comic named Morty Gunty. Yeah, Morty Gunty. And he yes. played the Catskill Mountains. And he had a kid show in New York uh, on uh, WOR Channel 9 when I was growing up. And my mom and dad had gone to Lake Tahoe this is in 1972 to see Engelbert Humperdinck. And the opening act was this comic, Morty Gunty. And um, my mother encountered him in a coffee shop the next morning and said, my son wants to become a comedy writer. What does he do? And he gave her his name and address, and I sent him some jokes. And he bought some, and I uh, became a professional comedy writer. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so your mother actually started your career. Yes, and if you speak to her today, she will remind you of that. <laughs> she won't let you forget that, yeah. So so Morty Gunty was the first client. He was my first client, yes. Right. And what do you remember any routines that he did, his own routines at the time? or Any of his routines? Yeah. His routines were routines that, by and large, I had seen other comics do. <laughs> he, he put his own spin on it, okay? <laughs> so he put his wife's name in somebody else's story, okay? <laughs> so I don't remember exactly what he... I mean, a big joke that he had back then, God help me, I, I and I didn't write this... Um, what did he say? That a, uh, a big book at the time, if you remember, was The um, uh, Joy of Sex. Yes. All right? And his wife, she merged that with The Joy of Cooking, which was another <laughs> book. And they try to bring a brisket to climax. That was his closer. That was, good night, everybody. I'm here all week. Okay. So that, I'm 21. And these yeah. guys that I was writing for were 45 and 50, yeah. and uh, the sensibilities were a little bit different. And where did they play? Where did they, were the Catskills? Yeah. Where, right, so that... And what it was, this the early 70s was the tail end of the Catskill Mountains. It reigned supreme in the yes. 40s, 50s, and 60s. And as history uh, lets us know, that all those hotels, Grossinger's, Concord, you know, Browns, yes. all of them had huge nightclubs, 
and that was the breeding ground for new comedians. Yeah. That's where Martin Lewis yeah. and Red Buttons and Buddy Hackett, yeah. they yeah. all came through there, and they went on to get their own TV shows and become entities. Yeah. By the time I got there after college, all the ones who were going to be stars had already gone on to become stars. And I was left with those who were still left behind. Right. And I think at one point in their heyday, the Catskills had well over 100 uh, hotels with night, all with big nightclubs. Uh, by the time I got there, they were down to it like about 18. So it was really It was slim fading. Pickings. It, was, it fading. was fading. And what they were doing was they were hanging on for dear life with every hope that gambling would come to the Catskills to save it as it had Atlantic City. Uh-huh. And that, that just never happened. Never happened. I got to play there, but at one point they thought, well, let's try David Steinberg because I was getting known on right. television. And uh, nothing of mine worked at the Catskills. <laughs> you, you, you were great because you, you, were, you, know, you were at the forefront of the comedians who, who spoke English okay? <laughs> yes. and, 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 and had sentences, full sentences, <laughs> yes. instead of those rhythms that yes. they had. And that's what they believed comedy was. They were conditioned, da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, chlemets, yeah. and they'd laugh. Yes, okay. anything with a ch in it. With a ch, anything yeah. with a ch. Yeah. So you would go on the road with Marty Gunty and... Yeah. Uh, Marty Gunty, Freddie Roman. They're very underrated. Like, Freddie Roman was a terrific comic. These were commercial comedians that can play in any room anywhere yes. in the country. Yes. And they would have a couple of hours of material and they would select the hour or the 45 minutes dependent on where they were and who was in the audience. They were very, very effective. But what had happened was when guys like yourself came along, when guys like you and Pryor and Mm -hmm. Lily and and, and storytellers and people who spoke and didn't have those rhythms, those guys started to fade out as the yes. baby boomers hooked onto you and bought your albums and yeah. whatever. Yeah. They were really a yeah. dying breed. Yeah. And where did those guys play besides the Catskills? Were they Flo- made great livings. In Florida, maybe? They, they, yeah, I'll tell you what they did. They were able to make a living in those days just staying in the Catskills. They would do, on a weekend, they would do on a Friday night, they would pull a triple. They would go from one hotel to the other wow. and then go play the late show in a lounge in some third hotel. Uh, so they were able to make a living in the Catskills. What, and what that all, they also made a living from, they did cruises. Uh, Florida, they played condominiums. But their ticket to the big time was that they would be the opening act for people like Engelbert Humperdinck or Tom Jones when yes. they came to the United States and needed an opening act comic. That was their gateway to play Las Vegas yes. or the theaters in yes. the round. And they did very well for yeah. themselves. They could make money by doing that and because it was Vegas money. It was, was Vegas a, money, yeah. yeah. And um, so uh, they did well. And, and they also did well because in those days, there were a lot of talk shows on TV in New York. Carson was in New York. Cavett was in New York. Mike Douglas was down in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It was Merv Griffin. Virginia Graham had a show. Yeah. They all needed comedians. So the guys who were doing mm-hmm. what I ended up doing, writing for them, 
they were also able to make a living because mm. they needed a turnover of material. So interesting. Uh, it's so interesting. So it was Merv Griffin at the time and David Frost and all those, oh, show, all all those shows. Yeah. yeah, they all need com- comedians. And ironically, in the when in the startup days, they would work on a piece of material forever. Yeah. And then when you go on television and you give that away, you can't do it again without the audience knowing it. So it sort of dies on television. To this very day, some of the guys who are still around from that era, you know, they'll tell these stories, you know, you know, Marty Ingalls stole my McDonald's routine. <laughs> I think they're walking around still pissed off yeah. that somebody went on TV. Yeah, yeah. It was a rush to the tube, yeah. but it was also whose material were they going to do once they got on the tube? Yeah, yeah. It was, take the best material you Take can. the best material, yeah. and yeah, call me Pisha. Yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> so how did you make a transition from there into SNL, which was happening at the time? Right? Well, this what had happened was right before SNL, I, I looked around, and um, I was living home with my parents, and I was working in a delicatessen to uh, supplement this great living I was making at selling <laughs> jokes at $7 a piece. Uh-huh. And I realized that the Catskills were a dead end. Mm-hmm. And I got really tired of these men who were twice my age telling me, oh, the joke is funny, but it won't play to my audience, you know? Mm-hmm. I wrote stuff that only the band laughed at. Okay. <laughs> yes. yeah, that's a dangerous... It's a horrible danger. Yeah. So what I did was, I thought, all right, what are the new Catskills? Where, where is the new breeding ground? And there were two clubs in New York. There was a Catch a Rising Star and mm-hmm. the Improv. And that's where people like Robert Klein and David Brenner and uh, Lily and mm-hmm. Bette Midler, our friend Larry David, they yeah. were all... St- coming through there. So what I did was I took the material that those Catskill guys wouldn't buy from me and I made it into a stand-up comedy act for myself. Oh. And my plan was to go on stage, deliver the material with hopes that a manager or an agent or somebody would come in. Those are the kinds of people mm-hmm. who hung out at these clubs looking for, mm-hmm. for talent. Somebody would like the writing and maybe represent my writing and help me get a job as a TV writer. And the first week that I'm doing this, I meet another guy who's just starting out, and his name was Billy Crystal. And he lived three towns from my parents on Long Island, and we became friends. He would pick me up every night in his little blue Volkswagen. We'd drive into the city. We'd each tell our jokes, and we would listen to the cassettes on the way back and critique each other. And I'm now about four months into this experiment of mine. And there was one night, it was about one o'clock in the morning, and I'm having the hardest time in the world making these six drunks from Duluth laugh. (laughs) And I get off the stage, and I go to the bar, and I'm just sort of hanging my head, waiting for Billy to be done. And uh, a guy comes in and sits next to me, and just starts stating at me and I go what do you, what do you want why are you staring at me and he shakes his head and he says you know you're the worst comedian I've ever seen in my life <laughs> and I, I I thanked him I said yeah I really need to hear this now this is really good because I'm really feeling really strong about myself thank you he said well your material's not bad did you write it and I said yes and he said can I see more of it it ends up this is Lorne Michaels Uh Uh-huh. And he's gone from, this is like April of 75. 
and he's gone from club to club looking for comics and writers mm -hmm. for this new show that he would have called Saturday Night Live that would premiere in the fall. Yeah. So I went home and I stayed up two days straight at my mom and dad's kitchen table and typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. <laughs> yes. And two days later, I went into the city for my meeting with Lauren. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to the Plaza Hotel, I think it was, and there was a pay phone. There was no cell phone. This is 75. And I called Billy Crystal, who had been speaking to Lauren about the possibility of he, Billy, being on this new show. Mm -hmm. So they had, had dinners. They went for walks. They spoke comedy. So I said, look, I'm about to have a meeting with this guy, Lauren. Anything you can tell me about him to give me a leg up in this interview? And he said, well, he used to work with Woody Allen. He's produced some Monty Python specials. Oh, and he hates mimes. Lauren hates mimes. <laughs> I said, okay, great. So I go upstairs at the appointed hour, and I sit on the bed, and he pulls up a chair, and he's got a, I hand him this tome of 1,100 jokes, and uh, he opens it up, and he reads the first joke, and he goes, uh-huh. Then he closes the book. I'm up for two days straight typing 1,100 jokes, right, with the typewriter keys that get sort of caught and the yes. ink on the fingers, and he read one joke. And um, to show you how long ago it was from the uh, reference points in it, uh, I had written a joke saying that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a $0.10 stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter, okay? <laughs> and good. He, he went good, very, very good. It's funny, I do that... You know, when I go do speaking engagements, I'll tell this story and I'll tell that sure. joke. And kids in college are going, well, why would you lick a stamp? Because, <laughs> yeah. because they Didn't just peel it. it and they just stick it on. They're looking yeah. at me like I'm crazy to, yeah. to lick such a thing. But, you know, and that was, um, he gave me a job on this new show. Who was on the show? Was that Chevy Chase and that group? It was the original group. Um, so the cast was, well, the guys were Belushi. Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, mm -hmm. and uh, Chevy. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the women were Gilda, Jane Curtin, and Lorraine Newman. Mm -hmm. And then when Chevy left uh, after a couple of shows into the second season, he was replaced by Bill Murray. Uh -huh. So that was the cast that I was yeah. uh, there with. You know? Yeah, Chevy was heralded as the heir apparent to, the, to Johnny Carson. Yeah. A little prematurely, <laughs> and, and mostly by Chevy, I must say. Yes, yeah, he, yes. he, uh, that's how I learned that Chevy was the heir apparent because Chevy told me. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think he had a roommate who um, who worked at the New York Magazine, and that someone wrote a story on him being the heir apparent. And uh, what I knew from the other mm -hmm. end is that uh, Carson. <laughs> Uh, was very unhappy with the fact that he had built a following that's unbelievable and S S Saturday Night Live was on for a week and Chevy Chase is now going to take over for Carson. So Carson, uh, I don't think he ever watched SNL after that. Well, I wonder if this is true. You, you, you could probably verify this because I had heard that Carson watched one show and we still... The show hadn't, we still had airtime, mm -hmm. okay? And the cast was on stage, and we had to fill about a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. And Carson was watching this, and after watching uh, 
Chevy, okay, not not being able to ad lib anything or be funny you know, <laughs> yes. to fill the minute. Yeah. <laughs> did Carson actually say that the Chevy Chase couldn't ad lib a fart at a bean eating contest? <laughs> yes, that was. <laughs> That that was his most complimentary. <laughs> oh, that was the nicest one. Yeah, yeah, I that see. Was that was the G-rated one, rather. Well, because the the media in general said, "Well, this will be the end of the Tonight Show as we know it," because SNL is so popular and bringing in the young people right. and all of that. And Carson had had that his whole career when Cavett came on. So all of a sudden, Dick Cavett was the heir apparent wow. to Carson. So every it was always the end of. Johnny Carson. And, and everybody came and went and he yeah, just Yeah, and he survived going. just by doing what he does and getting better at it and wow. picking, you know, people that he liked like me. Yeah, and, like you. Like me, yeah. And, and then you there was a great choice. Steve Martin was around and uh Lily Tomlin was there there was a on the cover of Newsweek of the new comedians was it was me and Lily Tomlin and Richard Pryor. It was Pryor, okay. Yeah, we were the cover of Newsweek, and uh, a belated congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. So, uh, so it was the start, and and Lily and I and Richard, we were very good friends, and uh, because we were working the same way, and to Vegas, we were still not, uh, you know, saleable, and we you had, were you playing the same places, so you yeah, would see each other yeah, all the time. Yeah, it was the the bitter end, the Village Voice. Um, uh, the cellar door in Washington, all places where there were jazz musicians. In I got gotcha. you. I opened for more jazz musicians. I opened for Miles Davis. I opened for um, oh, gee, who, who else? So there were so so many at the time, and the jazz musicians had a listening audience. So for someone like me, that wow! Was so perfect. it was built in. It was I built see. in. And and the musicians themselves, the modern jazz quartet was. I worked with them forever, and they would sit and listen to me every night. That's fantastic. Because they because I was a different style, and so was Lily, and and so was uh, Richard Pryor. Wow. Then, just as this article was about to come out, the agents were getting excited and all of that. I sent it to my mother. She had it up on the wall, uh, this big cover of me and Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin. And August the 9th is my birthday, and that was the day that Richard Nixon resigned. Bumped us off. I was living off of Nixon because I was parasiting off of him because I didn't like him. So all of my material was anti-Nixon. It was anti-Nixon, and, and now he's quits. he wins. He, he wins. got me off the cover. My mother had it in her house and uh, in her apartment in L.A., and she would put it above the Shabbat candles. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, um, you know, do the blessing on the candles <laughs> much after it was too late. But, uh, but uh, Richard and Lily and I laughed about that for years afterwards because it was a celebration that the three of us had because we were unique at that time. Yeah. Different than each other totally very good friends supportive of one another and then all of a sudden this big moment nixon was well it was nixon, probably his way of getting back at you everything at you me. said a yeah absolutely he, he said let's wait until david steinberg's birthday <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know it wasn't like i had the most intelligent nixon but you know i i one of the lines with you know that i tell you something about richard nixon that i'm sure you've never thought of and that he has a face that looks like a foot <laughs> right so it's not mort saul 
Paul or anyone who's really smart satirically, but I was after him in every way that I possibly could. And well, yeah, but you also had really smart material. I'm trying to remember who the reference who you were referencing because when um, people, as Watergate was growing and was becoming yes. more and more scandalous, yeah. you had named a few people. And you said that they were an example of rats swimming toward a sinking <laughs> yes, ship. Yes. Who were those people? It, I well, forgot. Jo- John Connolly was a, a Democrat who switched over to the Republican right. Party. And I said one of the rare instances of a rat swimming <laughs> towards a sinking there ship. There you go. Yeah. So if I remember it so many years <laughs> later, obviously, yeah. <laughs> either that or I'm just a savant and I could have used that part of my brain for yes. something really important, but I remember yeah. that. Yeah. So so in Saturday Night Live, Alan, so describe the atmosphere as a, as a rookie writer coming into me. It was, I was 24, we were all somewhere between 22 and 27. It was, by and large, everyone's first TV job, mm-hmm. okay? And Lorne preferred that. Mm-hmm. Lorne preferred that for a number of reasons. Number one, we were part of the baby, baby boomer generation, so he wanted us to speak to our peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he didn't want people who had been part of the Hollywood system of writing. He mm-hmm. didn't want us to have to break bad habits. Mm-hmm. There was something very collaborative about what we were doing. Mm-hmm. There was something where, because the actors were improv players, mm-hmm. and because he got them from Second City or Groundlings, there was um, the interplay between writers and actors. Um, I would sit with Gilda, and we would work together on something for her. Mm-hmm. And she would get up and do it in the room. Or Belushi, I, I wrote mm-hmm. the Samurais for mm-hmm. him, and he'd get up and show me. I said, well, what if he, how would you slice a tomato in Samurai Deli? Or this? So mm-hmm. it was a collaborative piece. The whole mm-hmm. thing was a collaboration. Yeah. And the, the only rule that we had, Lorne just said, let's just make each other laugh. And if we do that, we'll put it on television. If we mm-hmm. laugh, we'll put it on TV. That's a good rule. And he said, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm telling you that there's an audience out there who will find us and tell their friends about us. Huh, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, John, in John's book, he talks about me because he, he saw me at Second City. Right. And a lot of the, especially the Canadian group, they grew up with me at Second City. Sure. Yeah. So Belushi did... What happens in Second City, you inherit the previous group's scenes. Ah, okay. Now, but we we were starting out, and we didn't want to give Second City the right to all of our material. So Second City had to uh, write us and ask us if it was okay if we pass on the scenes. Which, I see. Which they did. One of the scenes that I had created was uh, Kurosawa was popular at the, the time, and the scene that I created was Rosh Hashanah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and in Rosh Hashanah, I did this Japanese, I played Toshiro Mifune. Right. And always it was like, and I'd throw in all Yiddish words. <laughs> that's and, hilarious. Yeah. So when, when John got to SNL, and he started to do that, and they, people were going crazy for it, it wasn't on the air yet, very generously called me up and said, David, I'm doing this. Is this okay? Was it clear? See, I didn't know this. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was such a general. I said, it's, uh, John, it's, it, I inherited from Avery Schreiber. Avery Schreiber inherited from Alan Arkin. Don't don't give it another. Wow, thought. I just learned something. Yeah. You know, because if memory serves me well, John brought the samurai character 
with him to the show. And the first samurai piece was written by a writer named Tom Schiller, who yeah. wrote Samurai Hotel. It was a hit. And then Buck Henry came to do the 11th show that we did. And uh, Lauren said to me, you worked in a deli, right? I went, yeah. He goes, okay, write Samurai Deli. I go, you bet. He leaves him. What, the, what am I going to do? What is <laughs> yeah. this? Yeah. Okay, and then I wrote that, and I went on to write nine, ten more, whatever we did. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember very, very early on, I was writing with Gilda, and she said, I want you to meet Martin Short. Now, this was a... 76, 77. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I went, I don't know who that is. She says, I want you to meet him. He's my old boyfriend. He's the funniest guy who ever lived. Now, that's that's a hell of a claim. Yes. Okay? Yes. And I'm going, okay, nobody can live up to that. Yes. And I, I uh, SCTV, he wasn't on. Or, yeah, no, or, no. And, and I didn't know who he was. And then... I saw footage of Ed Grimley, yes. and I thought I was going to lose my mind. Yes. I had never yes. seen anybody make themselves look like that, oh, talk like incredible. that, dance like that, yeah. walk like that, yeah. I'm, wear his pants up like that. Yes, it was hilarious. And it was because for me, a guy who was more about the ear, that was my training. It was yes. joke writing. Yes. It, it was, it's better to go to the radio than to television. There you right. go. Yeah. That's exactly right. right. So it wasn't about the eye. Right. So for me to write a samurai, well, yeah, it was a skill that I had to acquire. Yeah. Or any of the sketches that I wrote, what is this going to look like? What's this person going to wear? Because yeah. that's a statement in and of itself, as opposed to writing for Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> which was, you know, I could give him the joke like, uh, I never got any respect. Uh, even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend. Okay, that was easy, <laughs> but that would, that's more for the ear. Okay, yeah, it is. That's a great joke. As opposed to. Yeah. So when I saw Marty Short and when I saw the way Ackroyd moved on stage, yeah. Gilda, and I'm going, this was yeah. brand new to yeah. me, and yeah. it was hilarious. Well, I was in competition with Saturday Night Live because I came to Toronto to do the David Steinberg show, and I, I d- discovered, well, they were discovered to most of Canada, but Martin Short, Gene Levy, Andrea Martin, my God. Catherine O'Hara, that was my company. That was your company. And, and I played myself a, a satirical version of myself as the David Steinberg. I was very egotistical, sort of a you, Jack Benedict. So you did an exaggerated parody version of yourself, is that correct? <laughs> That's hilarious. Some might not say so exaggerated, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, some, some might say you were just behaving as opposed to acting, exactly. yeah. But, but everyone auditioned for me and I hired everyone. And two people came in, Martin Short came in and oh God, he was so far. Everyone's laughing, me, everybody laughing. They couldn't get over it. Tears coming down the last guy. I already had John Candy was already on, Joe Flaherty was ready, Andrea. They're just in hysterics. I thought, Martin, that is spectacular. What is that? And he was doing an impression of me. Oh, really? Yeah. That's real. That's great. I've never seen anyone do an impression of me. He had my high pitched voice. <laughs> He looked like me. He put on a wig, and uh, and he's the defend. <laughs> he claims I'm the definitive David Steinberg. I do the the best. Oh, you do the best, David Steinberg. Martin Short does the best. That's, David. Oh, that's hilarious. And it was so 
popular in Canada. And so I was celebrating. We were all celebrating because now it's time for next season. And as I said, start to talk to uh, CTV. And I say, so what are we going to do? And he said, well, we just let's not let's let's wait a little bit. I, we were so popular. It was unbelievable. Anyway, to make the long story short, they took us off for Stars on Ice. <laughs> oh, that's so painful. So, oh, it, that really literally hurts to hear that. In Canada, if you're ice skating, <laughs> you're going to get a television show oh. with all these brilliant comedians and we oh, we never got God, the, well. we never got that opportunity. But they were as gifted as anyone that I've ever any comedy types you've ever met. Sort of like in Second City, there were always one, two, three that stood out right. incredibly. This whole everyone group was a version. Well, of they that. all became big stars. And um, what I remember, you know, I helped Marty Short write his Broadway show, Fame Becomes Me. Yeah, and so I would stand in the back of the theater and watched. A hundred of the shows. Sure. I would laugh every night as if I was seeing it for the first time. A, it was funny, but there was a huge part of my brain that was still marveling that anybody could make their body do that. Yes. Make themselves look that. Yes. You know, who thinks of Jiminy Glick? Who who puts that thing on and makes Ah, him look unrecognizable and becomes that guy? As versatile and as talented as any comedian ever. I I think so. I mean, look, he can... He's, he, he says things funny. He looks funny. He sings. He yeah. dances. Impersonations. He. Yeah. I love talking to Marty about a dinner that he was at the night before <laughs> yes. because he impersonates everybody who was Absolutely. at the table. You yeah. felt like you were there. I didn't have to go <laughs> yeah. and spend money at dinner. Yeah. You yeah. know, I could have stayed home and watched the ball game because I heard yes. everybody through Marty. Yeah. And uh, and as a result, we're a little community, you know, me and you and Martin and Larry David, and we have dinners together, we're around it, each other. It's really fun. Well, we, this weekend has been a sad weekend for us in some ways because you you um, w- worked with Gary Shandling yeah. a lot, and this was a, a sort of a memoriam to, to Gary Shandling this week. Yeah. Um, an incredible uh, evening, actually, of every comedy person that you and I know. Yes, was, was there. there like, was it was there. last night. I mean, yeah. as we were recording this, yeah. um, and it was a, um, a a production, and it yeah. was a very tasteful, very funny, very moving production that uh, Judd Apatow yes. put he, together. He put it together so painstakingly and. Everyone was available to him because of how they felt about Gary. And that's what you felt in the room. I mean, I don't know how many people were in the uh, Wilshire Ebell Theater last night, but it was filled. And when I was standing up there giving my eulogy to Gary, I saw faces out there that I, you know, phone calls that I should have returned weeks ago. (laughs) Yes, right. But it was amazing, the people who came from all walks of comedy, all walks of show business, Al Franken flew in. Yes. You know, um, it crossed all lines. And then one common theme was people who who knew and were touched by Gary Shanley. Yeah, and Gary helped so many people, like Sarah Silverman, Judd, everyone just uh, had a story of love and affection and appreciation of his genius. Well, Gary had a, um, a, a weekly basketball game at his house that I played in, 
and he it was on Sundays, and it was basically it was a core group, you know, Duchovny and uh, Kevin Nealon. Mm-hmm. But if Ben Stiller was in town, he played. Mm-hmm. But that game was more than just a basketball game. People would get there early and then stay late afterwards. What Gary attracted was um, disciples. Yeah. People who admired his mind, and he was generous Mm -hmm. in dispensing advice, Mm -hmm. teaching people how to write. Mm -hmm. Um, I know when Judd would have a first cut of a movie, he would invite Mm -hmm. Gary for notes, Mm -hmm. and um, you wanted his approval, and you paid heed to his advice. He was a really smart writer, and he was really um, something so spiritual about him. So what I got out of that evening last night was, you know, it was funny. When Judd sent out emails about what time everybody should get there and the logistics of the <clears throat> evening, he said the service begins at 7 o'clock. Yes, yes. And think about what went yes. on last night there. There were Buddhist monks. Yes, And yes. There, was, there was, it was a service was in a, a way. It was a religious celebration somehow. It certainly was. Yeah, yeah. And a comedian so offbeat like Gary... But Gary, very generous, developed so many people. You were executive producer of, of the first show that When we did. created that show, it was one of those magical situations. I hadn't had it since I wrote with Gilda, yeah. where he was a guy that we thought alike. But there's enough difference and appreciation of the difference where the, the alchemy produces something that mm-hmm. neither of them could have done individually. Sure. sure. It was a very... Um, interesting experience and the show lasted four years yeah and um you know we 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 did a good job we had yeah. fun yeah i remember i came in to direct one of I the remember. shows sure <laughs> and there was a line that kept on coming up or some something that uh, you had written and all that and i kept on saying to you that it's not it's, it's, <laughs> this is this is not working alan this is not working and i'm just in for the day as a director you know i just came in because it was you and gary and uh, he said no well let's let's give it a shot and i said it, alan it, it, it's going to spoil the next few lines and the lines before it and then you said so cockily he said you want to bet <laughs> Cockily. Cockily. <laughs> it was cockily. <laughs> Look who's cockily. Yeah. So uh, I said, no, I don't want to bet, but okay, let's. it's going to happen. We'll do it. At, see it in the dress rehearsal. And uh, I'm not ashamed to say the biggest laugh of the night <laughs> was that cockily line. Yeah. Hence my cockily <laughs> attitude. Yeah. And I don't remember what the line was, no. but I do remember yeah. this happened. And I think I also remember going into the control room where you were directing. Yes. I, I believe I was yes. gl- gloating, You're I gloating. think. You, was, yeah. you, you came up before the line came out. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. You were so confident that they were going I to I wanted laugh. to experience this cockily thing with you. <laughs> well, yeah. Gary was, Gary, there was a frustration to him too because he was such a good writer that he while he was acting on stage if he thought of something in the moment yeah he would rewrite it and say it right there yeah much to the chagrin much to the delight of the audience and the and chagrin this, of uh, the person who had to now respond to him who script didn't know supervisor what he was saying. Yeah. no or the other actor or the other actor yeah where's my cue i never heard this line before you know <laughs> he was a conflicted guy when it came to the writing and the acting part of him because it was hard for him to shut off the writer and dedicate himself just to the acting. Sure. 
it was hard sure. for him to come down. Yeah. And but when he did, when he had the confidence in what we had written, and he would let go, and he would just enjoy the acting, yeah. as opposed to writing while he was still acting. Yeah, yeah he he was uh, unique and special, and it was interesting to see a whole community last night so touched. Uh, you had by the people loss of someone from his private life, like his cousin and. Um, uh, and his close friends, but if you take the the comics who were there yeah. last night, a guy like Kevin Nealon, yes. who so is hilariously Helene funny, and but made you cry because he was so emotional so about the experience. Yeah, he was so vulnerable, not able to deliver these brilliantly funny lines, and yeah. yet he did, and then he would cry and stay with it to the end. One of the most touching... Um, and really uh, hilarious sort of pieces that I've ever seen to have that dialectic yes. and be able to keep it together. I thought that was a, a perfect end to a show like that. I, I agree with you. And I saw him at the after party and I, you know, congratulated him on what he did. And it's a weird thing to say, um, congratulations on that eulogy you gave yes, to your yes, good friend. Exactly. You know, that's a weird yeah. sentence to say. But I said, Kevin, my God, you... Um, really hit it out of the park on so many levels, the emotionality yeah. of it and the humor of it. And he just looked at me and he said, it's all Gary. Yeah, it's all Gary. And I'm sure Judd Apatow, who produced the whole thing, which was a mammoth undertaking, just how delicate the whole thing was. And I'm sure uh, Judd felt the same way, as just uh, honored to be able to honor yeah. him. Yeah. 